last Shabbat, uh, we looked at Yeshua as the, the Christos in Greek, the Mashiach in Hebrew, which means the King, the Anointed King. So uh, in these first couple of, couple of chapters of Matthew, we see him as, uh, we see his birth, uh, we see, like I mentioned, his, his pedigree, his royal pedigree, which is very important if you have a claim to royalty. Um, there's an assassination attempt on him as a boy, makes a narrow escape, and then finally, when he grows up, he's anointed by his herald. It's, it's a very gripping story. And today we're just going to look at the birth of the king, the birth narrative uh, from the last uh, section in the, in the first chapter of Matthew. So um, you have a, a teenage Jewish girl. Her name is Miriam. Everybody say Miriam. Um, and in our culture, of course, gals don't generally get married in their teens. In the Jewish world, they would. In the ancient world in general, they would. Um, And even in the not-so-ancient world, my great-grandmother, for instance, who was from a Jewish family from the Ukraine, got married when she was 14. So it does happen. Anyway, so you have a Jewish teenage girl named Miriam. She was, uh, in our our lingo, we'd say she was engaged, but she was actually betrothed, which means you're legally married in, in, in the Jewish way of doing things, but you are not physically married. It's like a very serious engagement. And uh, during that time, she became pregnant. And uh, Matthew, actually, it states it very simply. It just says it was by the Ruach HaKodesh, by the Holy Spirit. It implies supernatural, a supernatural agency. It wasn't by physical means. And this is a foundational doctrine of our faith in Yeshua. That his mom was virgin and that she conceived by supernatural means. Now, when people first hear that, they say, yeah, right. In the first century, when people hear, hear that, they say, so would say, yeah, right. When Joseph heard that, he said, yeah, right. I mean, really. Oh, okay, you're pregnant out of wedlock, and it just, it was a miracle. It just happened miraculously. I haven't been with a guy, really. I mean, that's, that's, that's people's first response. Skepticism. And we're going to look at that uh, a little bit here. We're also going to look at the, uh, the ramifications. This is important because if Yeshua was b- born of a virgin, that's a pretty serious deal. And he should be taken seriously. Uh, his teachings and the things that happen in conjunction with his death should be taken very seriously. If Yeshua wasn't born of a, of, from a virgin girl and he was born from, let's say, as a product of rape or from an illicit liaison, then the whole thing is a farce. And our faith is a fraud. And we should not be here this morning. We should all be at home sleeping in. That's why this is really important. Um, I'm going to look at some, I'm going to address some different objections and views of the Mashiach's birth from Judaism, from Islam, from Roman Catholicism. And these are important because these are the ways many people in our world think. These are the ways that people in our city think, and we are going to, you bump into them. Also, we'll look at the skeptics, atheists, agnostics, and what they have to say about the birth of the king. And uh, we're going to start with a, a freaky thing that hit the newspapers, not tabloids, newspapers in 2004. There was a hammerhead shark, a female in a tank, and there had been no male in that tank for years, and she gave birth. And uh, it's, it's actually a natural phenomenon called parthenogenesis. 
Parthenos from the Greek, uh, Parthenos, a virgin. Genesis is birth. So Parthenogenesis literally is virgin birth. There was a virgin birth of a hammerhead shark. This, this raised a lot of eyebrows. I mean, even when you say virgin birth on the, on the, on the headlines of newspapers about a shark, it, it, you, you, you take a second look. And this, this raised a question in some people's minds. If this could happen with a shark, could it happen with a human? Could it be that Yeshua was just a freak of nature? Maybe it was just a natural phenomenon, a case of parthenogenesis by which Yeshua was born. You know, or, or um, yeah. So that's the question. Now, parthenogenesis is a real occurrence. Um, some aphids and scorpions, uh, whiptail, gecko, and rock lizards, uh, blind snakes, Komodo dragons, boa constrictors, hammerhead and black tip sharks, they have document ca- documented cases of these animals having babies with no help from a male. Now, if you're a female and you hate males, this sounds really attractive. Having babies with no contribution from the male. I don't, I don't know if there are male-hating hating animals in the same way. Um, also, certain forms of parthenogenesis in turkeys. This, so this raised questions. Now, could it be? Could it be that Yeshua's birth was a natural phenomenon via parthenogenesis? The answer is no. And this is why. There are two... There are two types of gender-determinative chromosomal systems in animals. In one of them, that in which most uh, you have like... They're, they're, okay, one is called ZW. If you're from outside Canada, it's called ZW. And basically, in that system, males have two female gender-determinative chromosomes. So that's the Z chromosome, okay? So if... Uh, you know how it works, right? Male contributes the sperm. Female contributes the egg. When they're together, they make a baby. A baby, whatever type of animal or human being you're dealing with. And um, in, this, in the ZW chromosomal arrangement that most, of, uh, most birds and reptiles are in, males are what you'd call homogametic. In other words, they only contribute the female chromosome. And the females are heterogametic, which means they contribute either the male or the female. So in birds and reptiles, it's actually the female that determines whether it's going to be a male or a female. So uh, a shark could actually produce, a female shark could produce male and female baby sharks all by herself as a freak of nature. Humans, however, and mammals are opposite. So males have an X chromosome, which is the female, and a Y chromosome, which is the male. I'm sure you've heard of the Y chromosome in terms of uh, uh, DNA, DNA tracing and things like that. Females have two X gender-determinative chromosomes. So what that means is a female by herself could only produce another female. So in human beings, even if there was a total freak of nature and a Jewish teenage girl got pregnant by parthenogenesis, she would have a baby girl. It would be impossible for her to have a baby boy. So it's a very fascinating question, and I think it's one that was raised in many people's minds, but the answer is no, that is not what happened. It takes a male, when it comes to human beings, it takes a male to produce another male. And I believe that's true on more levels than physical. Uh, If you look at cultures, males will have a society or a brotherhood in which the younger males are raised in, initiated in, that they looked up to and that they learned from. Um, 
there's a, there's a men's movement. It's not, it's not biblical at all. It's a spiritual kind of artistic men's movement. There's an author named Robert Bly, and he really talks about that, how males need initiation to grow up to be males. Uh, for a lot of guys, that happens uh, in either good, healthy situations or unhealthy situations. And males seek that out, generally. Uh, John Eldridge, who's an author in the Christian men's movement, kind of writes some similar stuff. Anyway, um, I think if you were to like, give a technical term to Miriam having a baby boy via spiritual means, you'd probably call it pneumatic parthenogenesis. Pneumatic means spiritual. Right? Now we're going to look at what Judaism has to say about the concept of a virgin girl giving birth to a baby boy in general, especially the Mashiach. This is important because even though we don't have any Jewish community in our city apart from us, when if you're a Christian, then it is your job to shine the light of Messiah and to represent Messiah to the Jewish people. I'm sad to say, but if I were to hand out a report card to most Christians for how well they communicate the gospel to Jewish people, they would get a D or an F. Simply because most Christians will be like, well, don't you know that he's the Messiah? Um, And it's like if you drop the keyword Messiah, somehow Jewish people are going to be like, oh, he's the Messiah, I get it. It doesn't work that way. Um, To communicate the gospel to Jewish people, you have to understand the Jewish mindset, you have to understand the Jewish interpretation of the scriptures, you need to understand a lot of things. And uh, that's something that the body Messiah is growing in. And that's why groups like us are around too. That's a specialty of ours. If you are messianic, this is important because often people who are returning to the roots of their faith become disoriented. They say, I came from a Christian background. I believe some lies. What's true and what isn't? I don't know what to believe anymore. And then they look at Judaism and they say, look, Judaism has been practicing the Torah for thousands of years. They must have it right. So you come in closer contact with the Jewish world, which is a good thing. And often, believers will come in contact with the anti-missionaries. These are observant Jewish people who have dedicated their lives to defending traditional Judaism against the messiahship claims of Yeshua. And often messianic people don't really know why they believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. So they come in contact with anti-missionary teaching and they crumple because they hear these reasonings from anti-missionaries. They hear one side of the case and they say, oh, uh, this is devastating. Yeshua must not be the Messiah. Forgetting what the book of Mishlei or Proverbs says. When one man states his case, he's right until another man steps up and cross-examines him. You need to hear both sides of the story. And anti-missionaries will only give you one side of the story. That's why this is important. I was just talking with a couple that moved to Saskatchewan recently, and uh, they don't have any fellowship in their area, and they've been playing around with anti-missionary stuff. And their, um, their faith is almost devastated already. So this is, this is not just something way out there. This is something that happens too often in the Messianic world. So that's why it's important to know what Judaism says and to know what the answers are. Okay, Judaism would say the concept of the Mashiach being born of a virgin, it's not a Jewish concept and it's nowhere in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. Okay, firstly, the question is not, is it Jewish? The question is, is it scriptural or biblical? Because all that's Jewish ain't right or true. 
any more than all that Scottish ain't right or true. And I'm part Scottish, so I'm allowed to say that. So eating sheep stomachs or running around naked in little dresses if you're a male and playing bag bagpipes, that may not be right or true simply because it's Scottish. I'm not saying it is or isn't, right? I'm giving you a, a, a humorous example. Here, here are some answers to the Jewish objection that Mashiach wasn't going to be born of a virgin. That's not a Jewish idea, and it's nowhere in the Tanakh. Here are six lines of reasoning. I'll give them to you. Number one, the first prophecy of the coming of the Mashiach is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. The opening chapters of the Torah. Uh, the early Yeshua believers called this the Proto-Evangelion. It's like the prototype of the Gospel. And it simply says... I'm going to read it to you in Hebrew. The eva and enmity ashit. I will place bencha between you, addressing the serpent, uvein haisha, and between the woman, uvein zaracha, and between your seed, addressing the serpent, uvein zara, and between her seed. Hu yeshufcha, rosh, he will crush your head, veata, and you, tshufenu, will crush akev, his heel. So there's the first prophecy of the Messiah. He will come and he will crush the head of whoever it is that this serpent represents. This lying serpent representing the ultimate enemy of the Creator. So that's the first thing right there. Did you notice whose seed it says? It didn't say the seed of Adam. Why didn't it say the seed of Adam? It said the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. Hmm. Keep that in mind. Number two, uh, we read about Isaac... Yitzchak ben Avraham, he was born of a natural union, but Isaac's birth was actually supernatural also. Sarah was way too old to have a baby. That was a total miracle. And Yeshua is the ultimate ben Avraham, son of Abraham. So could it be that Isaac's supernatural birth was a foreshadowing, to a limited degree, of Mashiach's supernatural birth? I believe so. Get this, there was actually a stream of Jewish thought in the Second Temple era, so a couple thousand years ago, that believed that Isaac was actually begotten of God. So, now that's not true, right? But it was out there. I'm going to read to you a short quote from Philo. How many of you have heard of Philo before? Uh, Philo was a Jewish philosopher. He was based in Alexandria, Egypt. He was, a contem- he was around when Yeshua was around, and when Shaul, Yeshua's emissary, was around, they were contemporaries. And I'm not, I'm not quoting Philo as Bible, right? But I'm quoting him because it gives you an insight into Jewish thought in the Second Temple era. This is what Philo says in the third book of his allegorical interpretations of the Torah in uh, chapter 77. He says, Open your ears, therefore, O ye initiated, and receive the most sacred mysteries. Laughter is joy, referring to where Sarah says, The Lord has call, called me laughter, and whoever hears of it shall rejoice with me. Laughter is joy, and the expression has caused is equivalent to has begotten. So that what is here said has some such meaning as this, The Lord has begotten Isaac. Now we know that Abraham begat Isaac. That's stated very clearly even in Matthew chapter 1. But just get that. It was so stark, that story about the supernatural birth of Isaac, that some Jewish philosophers concluded, God actually begat Isaac. Could it be that Isaac is a picture of Yeshua, the son of Abraham? That's one of his titles in this very chapter. 
Okay, number three, in Psalm 2, Tehillim 2, it talks about the Mashiach explicitly. Uh, this psalm is about the Messiah acknowledged in the Jewish world in Bavli Sukha 52a and Avodah Zarah 3b. Those, those references probably mean nothing to you, but Judaism today is, built, is based not only on the written Torah, but on the Talmud, which is massive volume of commentary that was written down from the 200s to the 500s. And in the Talmud, it states very clearly, Psalm 2 is about the Mashiach. Uh, also in the Midrash, in four different places, including the Midrash on Psalm 2. This is the way Psalm 2 reads. Bani Ata, you are my son. Ani, I, Hayom, today, Yeliticha have begotten you. So get that. In Psalm 2, in the Hebrew Bible, the Creator explicitly says to His Mashiach, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is fascinating. There's, um, there's some ancient Jewish commentary called Yalkut Shimoni on Psalm 2. And it compares the Gentile nations. You know, why do the nations rage? It compares them to a robber who stands defiantly behind the palace of the king. And this is what he says. If I find the son of the king, I will lay hold of him and crucify him and kill him with cruel death. So in traditional Jewish thought, there's even the idea that the Mashiach, the son of the king, would be crucified by the Gentile nations. Wow. Okay, fourthly, in the Jewish world in the Second Temple era, Son of God was an accepted title of the Mashiach. So today, the anti-missionaries would say, Son of God, that is not a Jewish title for the Messiah. You just don't call the Messiah the Son of God. Actually, that's true today, because Judaism has evolved over time, and to some degree, it has grown in antithesis to Christian thought. It's called polemics, right? Christians say one thing, so Jews say the other. And it happens on both sides. Jews say one thing, so Christians say, we're not Jewish, so that, that's not us. We think differently, because we don't want to look Jewish. Um, that's another dynamic in history. However, 2,000 years ago, in the Jewish world, the Son of God was a title of the Messiah. It was an accepted title. <clears throat> I'll, give you a couple, I'll give you a couple historical quotes for this. In the book of Enoch, which was written down like one or two hundred years before Yeshua, and was quoted by Jude as a reliable scriptural document, Mashiach in chapter 62 verse 5 is called the woman's son. Okay, get that. The Messiah is the, the, the woman's son. And then in the oldest portion of the book of Enoch in chapter 105 verse 2, Mashiach is actually called the son of God. So in, in, in Jewish apocalyptic expectation, as the Jewish people were waiting for the coming of the Messiah, even one in two hundred years before Yeshua came on the scene, they were expecting the Messiah to be the Son of God. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, very famous bunch of documents that turned up from the early Qumran community. They were a, a sect of Judaism that lived out in the desert uh, in Yeshua's time. There's a certain fragment that turned up called the Son of God fragment. Guess why it was called that? Here's what it says. He shall be called the Son of God. They will call him the Son of the Most High. He will judge the earth in righteousness and every nation will bow down to him. With God's help he will make war and all the peoples will be given into his power. So did you get that? A Jewish sect, authentically Jewish, in the Second Temple era was expecting the Mashiach to be called the Son of God. Do I have you convinced yet? Okay, number five, the writings of Yeshua's emissaries, the apostles, 
who were all devout Jews, represent a widespread Jewish expectation that Mashiach would be called the Son of God. In the Sanhedrin, that was a term that was thrown around for the Messiah. So, just because if you, if you are a traditional Jew and you don't believe in Yeshua, just because Yeshua's apostles disagree with you, doesn't mean you can discredit their Jewishness. You can't just say, well, the apostles weren't Jewish, the New Testament isn't a Jewish document. It actually is a thoroughly Jewish document. And just because New Testament-based Judaism disagrees with rabbinic Judaism, doesn't make it any the less Jewish. You may remember in the, in the 100s, there was a rabbi named Akiva, and he proclaimed a man named Bar Kokhba to be the Messiah. And hundreds of thousands of Jews rallied around him, persecuted Messianic Jews because they wouldn't believe in him, because they believed in Yeshua. These guys who were following Bar Kokhba were so radical, he actually had them chop off one of their fingers as a sign of allegiance. And he led them in a rebellion against Rome, and they actually overthrew Roman, Roman rule for a couple of years, and then the Romans crushed them thoroughly. Even though Rabbi Akiva was like the prophet, you could say, of this false messiah, he still went on to be revered as the foremost figure, you could almost say the founder of Talmudic Judaism. So maybe everything in Talmudic Judaism isn't really Jewish either. That's, that's something that I would suggest to you if you're a, Tal- a Jew who follows the Talmud and who thinks that the Talmud alone defines Judaism. Okay, and then sixthly and finally, Matthew says that the prophet Isaiah alludes to a virgin giving birth. He says that explicitly. Okay, in this passage in Hebrew, it says, the virgin shall conceive and give birth or whatever. The Hebrew word there is Alma. Anti-missionaries will say, the word Alma doesn't mean virgin. It means a young woman. It simply means a maiden. Anti-missionaries say, if Isaiah was giving a prophecy that a virgin would give birth, he would have used the Hebrew word Betulah, because Betulah means virgin. Eh, wrong. Actually, Betula doesn't always mean virgin. I'll give you a couple proofs of this. In Joel chapter 1 verse 8, it says this, Lament like a Betula. That's the word that anti-missionaries say means virgin and that Isaiah would have used if he was talking about a virgin birth. Lament like a Betula with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Now, let me ask you, if a, woman, a young woman is married and she loses her husband, is she a virgin? No, she's not a virgin. All right? So, betulah here doesn't mean virgin. Um, betulah can simply mean a young... Okay, in this case, it means a young widow. However, in many cases, it simply means a young woman, just like Alma. Um, I'll give you a couple examples. I won't quote them here for you, but in Isaiah 23.4, Ezekiel 9.6, and 2 Chronicles 36.17... Um, it mentions young men, and then it uses this word, simply to mean young women. Okay? That's the first answer to this, this anti-missionary objection that Isaiah, used, you would have used the word betulah if he meant a virgin birth. Secondly, who here knows what the Septuagint is? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And it was done a couple hundred years before Yeshua, and it was a very accurate reflection of Jewish thought. It can help us understand the way the Jewish people interpreted the Bible a couple hundred years before Yeshua came on the scene. And in the, in the Septuagint, the Jewish sages used the Greek word parthenos to translate Alma. Parthenos almost always means virgin in Greek. Greek is a very precise language. You have a wide variety of words to give the precise nuance. Parthenos is the Greek word for virgin. 
So a couple hundred years before Yeshua, the Jewish sages translated this word, the young woman shall give birth, as virgin. So yeah, that was a Jewish thought in the Second Temple era. Um, Thirdly, in the same context of this passage in Isaiah, we read this. Uh, Isaiah 9, 5. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name is called, you know it, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If you open up the Jewish Publication Society's translation of this passage, if you could just flip it one over, this is how it reads in the JPS. In their translation, their English translation. His name is called Peli Joaz El Gibor Abiyad Sarshalom. Do you think that's strange? This is an English translation. How come they just run all those words together in one long term and they don't translate it? Could it be because if Jewish people read this passage, it would get them thinking? Yes. Um, Anti-missionaries would say, oh, well, this passage about, uh, about you know, Emmanuel, the, the, the young woman giving birth, it's, uh, it's either talking about Hezekiah or it's talking about one of the sons of Isaiah. You know what? On, on one level, it could be a reference to, Heze- to Hezekiah. I have no problem with that. But when you look at the glorious description of the, the son of this young woman, I'm sorry, Hezekiah just doesn't fit the bill. He just does not fit the bill. This is a little too glorious. It goes on to say, like, his kingdom will have no end. You know, you know the passage. And that's I, I, definitely not talking about Isaiah's son. Okay, I'm also going to read to you the translation of this passage from uh, Art Scroll. Art Scroll is, uh, is the classic Orthodox Jewish translation. I really love their translation in general. But when it comes to some of the Messianic prophecies, they, I, I feel they, uh, they bend over backwards to translate some things other than how it reads literally. In um, Art School, the Orthodox Jewish translation of Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and the dominion will rest on his shoulder. The wonderful advisor, mighty God, eternal Father, called his name Sar Shalom. So did you get that? They would translate that as the first three titles belong to God, calling his name Sar Shalom. Unfortunately, that's just not how the Hebrew reads. That's really forcing the text. So, Isaiah chapter 9, referring to uh, this character upon which the kingdom, his shoulders, the kingdom will be on his shoulders. Yeah, that's talking about the Mashiach. Okay, many, uh, so those are some answers to anti-missionary objections. Just hold those in your mind. They're going to be very important for some of you. Um, skeptics, even here in Prince Albert, uh, agnostics, atheists, they'll uh, often point out, they'll often claim that a virgin birth is actually a pagan concept from the pagan cultures of the world. Uh, there's a book called The Pagan Christ. There are a lot of books along those lines trying to blur the lines and say basically the early Yeshua believers were just copying pagan culture and uh, appropriate, misappropriating all of these pagan myths and applying them to Christ. Um, that's a very popular idea out there. And uh, they would say they did that to uh, make him look like he had glorious origins instead of uh, um, you know, maybe owning up to his true ignominious origins. 
Um, frankly, I can, I can sometimes see where they're coming from in that when we look at the traditional celebration of Christ's birth, it is a Christianized version of a pagan celebration of some kind of some figure's birth. Like December 25th, everybody knows that wasn't Jesus' birthday um, that was imported into the uh, early church, Christianized by Constantine when he was forming his state religion. You know the story. So you know what? People, people will sometimes say, like pagan, neo-pagans today will say, Christians stole Christ- like the winter solstice and Christmas from us. That was ours. And they went and Christianized it. So you know, that, you can see why, why agnostics and skeptics would say, well, you know, maybe, uh, maybe that was just a pagan myth, the whole virgin birth thing. Um, it is true that in the ancient world, the, the Egyptian pharaohs, some Roman Caesars, and Alexander the Great all claimed to be born of virgins. They claimed that the gods, or whatever their, their form of deity was, was their actual father and that were begotten of them. It, it's actually it's a great strategy. If you want to really buttress your claims to the divine right of kingship, if you want to be able to just kind of pull out that as your trump card and say, well, I'm right because you're just a bunch of human beings and you're messed up, and I was fathered by the gods. It's like you really can't argue with that one. So you can see where these guys were coming from. Of course, it was a lie. I'll give you three responses to that. To this whole, that suggestion that the virgin birth was pagan. Uh, Firstly, I just proved to you that the Mashiach being born of a virgin is actually not pagan. It's a very Jewish concept. And it was actually prophesied seven centuries before Yeshua's arrival by the prophet Isaiah. So it's not pagan. It's Jewish and it's biblical. And it's ancient. Uh, Secondly, here's, here's another, this whole concept of Mashiach being supernaturally conceived by the Ruach HaKodesh through a visitation from God, it's a thoroughly Jewish concept. I'll give you an example. In, um, in the Midrash Rabbah, which is ancient Jewish commentary on the book of Genesis, when it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, Jewish commentary says that was the Spirit of Messiah. The Spirit of Messiah was around at the very beginning. He was involved in the active process of creating the cosmos. Mashiach was pre-existent. That's a Jewish concept. Uh, thirdly, this, this is a really old objection, okay? Like, for the first couple hundred years of the Yeshua movement, this is what the early like, Greek philosophers and, and Roman pagans were saying. Hey, that's our idea. You know, some savior figure being born of a virgin or whatever. And uh, the early the early Yeshua believers, this was their response. For instance, uh, Justin Martyr and Tertullian, they would say, "We didn't take that from you guys. You took that from us. This this was our idea. This is a biblical idea. This was a thoroughly Jewish idea. And you pagans stole the idea of the virgin birth from us. So we're not we're not copying you. You are copying us." And uh, you know what, that's, that's an excellent answer. Uh, they would also go on to say, there is, you have to be aware of, a force of evil in the world. It's spearheaded by a dark prince who uses the darkness of lies to control human society. And he is a fabricator. He's like the original counterfeiter. So all of these pagan concepts of some Christ figure or a savior figure being born of a virgin, those are just demonic counterfeits by demons generating those ideas in, in human cultures that are unregenerate, so that when the real one shows up, 
people will be so messed up and confused by all the counterfeits, they won't be, ident- be able to identify the real thing. That was the early Yeshua movement's classic answer to that objection. Of course, if you don't believe that demons exist, or that there is a dark prince who's working to control the world through deception, that's not going to be very convincing. But it doesn't take much of a brain to see that there is evil at work in the world. People are insane. Maybe there's a spiritual influence behind it at times. Hey, So that's, a, that's an answer to a classic uh, Jewish objections. Let's, let's look for a second at uh, Islam and Roman Catholicism and their perspective. Islam actually teaches that Isa, or Yeshua, was born of a virgin, but that he isn't the son of God. Go figure. In Islam, Yeshua is called Isa ibn Maryam. Yeshua ben Miriam. Did you get that? They don't call him Yeshua, the son of Joseph. They call him Yeshua, the son of Miriam, because she was a virgin when she gave birth to him. Uh, I'll, I'll read to you a short passage from the Quran. And I do not, the Quran, of course, is a false document uh, and everything. The reason I'm talking with you about Islam is because there is an increasing number of Muslims who are immigrating into Western society, we have a growing Muslim community here in Prince Albert. Most people have one of two responses to the, incro- the uh, encroach of Islam. Either fear, they say they're coming to kill us all, and there's nothing we can do. And frankly, quite often, that's the, that's the reaction in the Messianic world and in the Christian world. Militant Islam is on the rise. We're going down. The other response is just brainless love. And you know what? You should love Muslims. Go say hi. Go say salam to a Muslim sometime. Seriously. Because a lot of Muslims move to the West and they think everybody hates them. They think Christians and Jews hate them. And when you actually show them a little bit of kindness, it blows them out of the water. If you read stories of Muslims who came to faith in Yeshua, a little bit of love goes a long way often with a Muslim person. Genevieve and I go out of our way to say hi to Muslims, to welcome them to our country and stuff, because we love them. But... That's not, that shouldn't be where it stops. You need to know how to communicate the gospel to a Muslim person. You need to know how a Muslim thinks. You need to know what their understanding of Yeshua is. And then you need to know from there how you can communicate the, true, the truth of the word to them. And that is the part where often we just love Muslims and we'll give them a hug. But we don't have a clue how to reach them. And uh, that's why I'm going to be repeatedly saying, this is what Islam teaches and this is the truth. Because I want us as a community to be equipped to reach Muslims for Mashiach. That's, that's a very important thing to me. Okay, so in the Quran, chapter 19, it's the chapter about uh, Maryam. This is like, um, I guess this would be um, their version of God talking. We sent to her our spirit and appeared to her as a well-made man. He said, okay, so get this in Islam. It was the spirit who came to Maryam and uh, said... I am only bearer of a message of thy Lord that I will give thee a pure boy. She said, How can I have a son? And no mortal has yet touched me, nor have I been unchaste. Did you get that? In Islamic theology, Miriam was a virgin. He said, So it will be. Thy Lord says, It is easy to me, and that we may make him a sign to men. Get that? A sign. In Islam, Yeshua was going to be a sign and mercy from us. And it is a matter decreed. Then she conceived him. That's what the Quran says about the conception of the Mashiach. Now, some Islamic commentaries and theologians will bend over backwards to say that Yeshua was actually conserve, conceived by ordinary means. 
but it explicitly says in the Quran, then she conceived him. All right? So she heard that she was going to conceive, and she said, how can I? I'm a virgin. And he said, it's going to happen. It's easy for me. He's going to be a sign and a mercy. And she conceived him. Okay, of course, this is not an accurate narrative, okay? I want to point that out. But if you talk with a Muslim person, this is where they are coming from. This is their view, this is their view of Yeshua. Notice too here, like I said, that he would be a sign referring to his virgin birth. So in Islam, Yeshua's virgin birth would be a sign. What would it be a sign of? Maybe who his true father was. Even though Islam teaches that. Islam, it's like one of the dogmas of Islam. If you go inside the mosque on the Temple Mount, and you read what's written in Arabic, it says, Allah is not begotten, and He does not beget. God does not father, and he is not, and he is not fathered, is the idea there. Okay, that's like a, that's a tenet of Islam. <clears throat> but let me ask you, and if you're, if you're a Muslim, let me ask you this. If Yeshua was conceived of a virgin, who fathered him? Who could it have been but the creator of the universe? Also, if the Gospels, like Matthew, are correct in the details of Yeshua's virgin birth, maybe the Gospels are correct in the remainder of what they say about him, that he actually is the literal son of God, that he was begotten of the Father. If you're a Muslim, I, 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 I strongly plead with you to consider that. Okay, Roman Catholicism and pseudo-Orthodox Christianity, they're right in teaching, yes, indeed, Mary was a virgin, but they go on to say that she remained a virgin for the remainder of her life. Uh, the Greek term for this false doctrine is Eparthenos. Everybody say Eparthenos. Um, in English, that's generally called the perpetual virginity of Mary. This is important because often in the Christian community today, in the name of love, we check our brains out at the door and we don't actually compare notes about doctrine. And guys, doctrine is important. Love is even more important. I'm involved in the ministerial here in PA. So, I mean, I, I see bishops, I see Roman Catholic priests, I see Orthodox Christian dudes and I like them and we talk and stuff but doctrine is really important because it it will indicate whether you have a true understanding of Messiah or whether maybe you're actually following a false Messiah Paul said there are other Christs out there okay Eparthenos in English it's called the perpetual virginity of Mary in church liturgy this idea is expressed as Mary ever virgin for instance, some Eastern Orthodox liturgy often ends with remembering our most holy, pure, blessed, and glorious lady, the Theotokos and ever-Virgin Mary. Okay? Now, if this doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary were true, it would explain why Joseph, her husband, died several decades before she did. If I couldn't be physically close with my wife, I think I would go early too. It would be a very miserable existence. But it's not true. Here's something interesting. Uh, Martin Luther, Holdrich Zwingli, two of the like, towering figures in the early Reformation, both actually believed in Eparthenos, the perpetual virginity of Mary. John Wesley did too. Interesting little fact. Um, if you read church history, Christians have a very sad tendency to be really squeamish about the physical aspects of love and about marital intimacy. It's like the early church was Victorian like 16 or 1700 years before the Victorian era started. Really, really, really weird 
stuff. I mean, it would, it would make a great it would make a great documentary or a great couple of teachings, but I'm not going to go into detail about all the weirdness. Um, here's, here's the basic response. Mark chapter 6, verse 3, and Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, both list Yeshua's four brothers, younger brothers, and also his sisters. Okay? Yeshua had brothers and sisters. Now, some of the theologians in the early church, like in the Roman Catholic era and slightly before that, would say, well, those were actually the children of Joseph from a previous marriage. So Joseph was married, he had four boys and so, at least two girls, and then, um, and then his, his wife died and he became a widower, and then he was betrothed to Mary, and Mary conceived as a virgin and she gave birth, and then um, they never consummated their marriage. And uh, they lived, well, happily ever after from Mary's side, and very unhappily ever, ever after from Joseph's side. Um, I will give you another... Another, this, is, this is the verse, this is the main answer on this topic. Matthew chapter 1 verse 12 straight up says that Joseph took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin, does it say perpetually? Until, everybody say until, she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Yeshua. Okay, so it says it right there. If it really wanted to underscore the perpetual virginity of Mary, it would have said it. But Matthew said he kept her a virgin until a certain period of time, which makes sense, because that's biblical marriage. If Mary was a really spiritual person, and she was, and if she was Jewish, and she was, then she wouldn't be playing weird games, and playing ultra-hyper-spiritual, and never being intimate with her husband. That's not biblical. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 makes that very clear, okay? So if Mary is like a hero of the faith, and she is, then we will have to assume that she also lived a righteous lifestyle and she had a healthy marital life, and she did. So, I will, uh, oh, those are, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Um, with, and um, here, here, here's, here's where we can leave it on a practical level. Paul, in his letter to the early Yeshua community in Rome, said this, Yeshua was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord. So you know what Paul said? You can know that Yeshua is the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. God declared it powerfully at that moment. The, histori- the, the resurrection of the Messiah is a historical fact. And it, there is strong evidence proving it. And if Yeshua was truly raised from the dead, you can bet your bottom dollar that everything that was said about him is true. Everything he said about himself. Everything that the apostles said in the New Testament is true about him. Here's, here's a practical conclusion for us. Yeshua is around today because he's the Son of God and he was raised from the dead. He's actually accessible. You can reach him. You can have contact with him. You can know him. You can know the Son of God. He is awe-inspiring. If he was just an itinerant Jewish rabbi, kind of homeless, kicking around, maybe that wouldn't be very impressive. But he was more than that. He was and is the Son of of Elohim. That means he's also the ultimate king. He deserves allegiance. He is worthy to be worshipped. It's only right. And when Yeshua beckons the world and beckons your neighbors and your family members and co-workers to follow him, he's overwhelmingly deserving of that because he is the Son of God. He deserves to be followed. Follow the Son of God. Follow the true, the true King. That also means that the red letters in the Scriptures, all the words of the Master, they carry so much weight. They pack such a punch. Because He's the Son of God. 
He's the Ben Elohim. You know, some people, some people will kind of relegate the Gospels to second place. They say the Torah is where it's at. We study the Torah. We don't spend a lot of time in the Gospels. I disagree with that. I believe the Gospels are the center of the Scriptures. The Torah is the foundation. It defines terms. It lays the foundation for the Gospels. But stay in the Gospels. Stay in the red letters. Because they're the words of the very Son of God. And when Yeshua said, do this or don't do that on a practical level... That's to be taken really seriously because I was the Son of God talking. The only Son of God. Yeah. Lastly, we can be proud of Yeshua because He is glorious. I mean, it really, it floors you to think that He was born of a virgin, that He was actually fathered by the Almighty Himself. Be proud of that. Be proud that Yeshua is the Son of God in the face of the anti-missionaries, in the face of false claims by Islam, in the face of the skeptics, the agnostics, the atheists, who would besmirch his reputation, who would disagree with the Gospels, who would make him out to be something he's not. Be proud of Yeshua and be vocal about who he is. We can be vocal about who he is because you are on the side of truth and you know who he really is and the world needs to hear it. And if they disagree, that's their problem. They need to hear the truth. So on a practical level, that's, what we, that's how we can see the doctrine of the virgin birth of the Messiah applied to our lives. Yeah. So hopefully that that equips us to represent Messiah. Hopefully that gives us a deeper awe of him and a greater passion to follow him. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.